From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Today on The Surgery Set, I'm joined by Dr. Dan Abbott. He's an associate professor here at the Department of Surgery at UW-Madison, where he specializes in surgical oncology. Dr. Abbott's been gracious enough to actually host a few episodes of The Surgery Set in the past, so his voice may sound familiar. Dr. Abbott received his MD from the University of Washington in Seattle before going on to complete his residency and a research fellowship at Northwestern, and then a surgical oncology fellowship at UT Houston and MD Anderson. His uh, interest is in health services research, where he focuses on cost effectiveness, systems efficiency, and socioeconomic disparities in cancer care. He talked at our Grand Rounds and had some thoughts on how to address the problem of financial aid and the personal costs of cancer care. He'll be discussing some of his observations with us today, along with some future opportunities for change. And with that, we welcome Dr. Dan Abbott. So Dr. Abbott, welcome back to the surgery set. You're, uh, you're on the other side of the mic for a change. Yes, uh, thank having... you for having me. It's a privilege. We're here talking about uh, the inhumane cost of cancer care, which was the topic of your Grand Rounds, a really fascinating dive into some of the costs around healthcare and both financial and personal costs that people undergo when they have a complicated medical condition. But first, I, I just want to say I did not realize that you had gone to Washington State University, the Cougs. For undergrad, yes. Yeah. But then I went to medical school at the University of Washington. So for those familiar with the Northwest, a Husky versus Cougar conflict is significant. My wife went to the University of Washington, and uh, yes, you, you're your own internal apple cup. Yes, basically. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the topic of your talk, which I thought was totally fascinating, was um, the you talk about resource overutilization and how that's bad from a system standpoint, and also how that, that hurts beyond the numbers, that it hurts people to be doing too much without demonstrable benefit. And that actually, it happens a lot. Yeah, and I think that all stems from this cultural belief that more is better and that more makes a difference without any empiric proof whatsoever that that's the case. And you can make a list of the ways in which that overuse hurts people. For example, people who have too many diagnostic studies and have incidental findings, and that leads to more scans and biopsies and overtreatment. It leads to the fiscal realities of having to pay for every one of these things. And not only does that impact the patient, but it impacts the rest of us who pay money into a pooled insurance system. And so not only does it increase costs significantly for one person, but it marginally increases costs for all of us. And then thirdly, there is the non-financial cost. That is the opportunity cost of people's time, their support, lost wages, traveling, all that. The, the list goes on and on. And I, it, it, again, I think all comes from this belief that we must do everything. And we're the only country in the world that approaches healthcare like that. And do things even if their, their benefit isn't demonstrable and their harms are actually evident. Real, right? Yeah. yeah. There is nothing that is risk-free. You, you talked quite a bit about financial toxicity. And I remember in the sort of pre- Affordable Care Act days when, you know, we had a lot more people without insurance, knowing that, you know, there was a lot of medical bankruptcy around, you know, complex medical care and, and you know, bad diagnoses like cancer that take you out of the workforce, you know, 
for a long time, if not permanently. But you make the point that, that even with insurance, people are still going bankrupt. Yeah, that's right. So so 75% of patients, and this has been demonstrated in a number of surveys and studies, so 75% of patients who declare personal bankruptcy due to medical bills had insurance at the time of their diagnosis of this catastrophic healthcare event. And so for all of us to think that we have adequate insurance that's going to pay for the real reason that we have it, right, is for these catastrophic events, the vast majority of the time it does not cover everything that we believe that it covers. And for, for people who don't have significant sums of, of money as backup, that is just a, a, a life-changing reality. It's not just if you have insurance, it's you have adequate insurance, right? And if right. You're, you're, people are insured for, like, the broken leg, but they're not insured for pancreatic cancer. And I'd be very curious, we should do a survey yeah. or uh, a little study of people about what their perceived insurance coverage is versus what their actual insurance coverage is. And I suspect there would be a very wide gap between those two things. I mean, that's the thing that just stuns me about the healthcare system is like, I live in it, right? Like you and I live in healthcare. But if you ask me how much anything costs, I couldn't tell you. I, if you ask me like, what is going on in my patient's financial lives, I couldn't tell you. And if you ask me what my own personal insurance covers, I have no idea. Yeah. I know I like signed up for like what seemed like the better plan. You know, the pessimist might say that that's an intentional lack of transparency. And even in the best case scenario, that is just lack of information that we all have to guide decisions. It's a real problem. And you show that it actually does, at a very basic level, financial decisions guide therapy. Like, co-pays drive your cancer care. That's right. So there, there are some really nice studies in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, among others, that show that the more expensive a cancer medication is, the less likely patients are to adhere to that. And these are medications that in randomized trials have been demonstrated a survival benefit. And, and unfortunately, the elderly and or the poor are much more sensitive to those co-pays and those out-of-pocket costs. And so invariably, those at-risk patients, as drugs become more and more expensive, are going to have poorer cancer outcomes purely as a function of finances. It can be as little as what we think of as an almost incidental amount for a copay. You're not asking them to pay the full $100,000 cost of that therapy. Right. You're asking them to pay the $50. That's exactly, that moment. is exactly right. And that'll change care. It's just amazing. I mean, I guess it's economics, but it's, it is. it's incredible. It's just very frustrating in a country with the resources that we have that that is the, the state of our of our healthcare. And certainly many people who believe that healthcare is a, a privilege, not a right. But I know a lot of us providers don't necessarily agree with that. No, absolutely. You talk about a few ways, though, that, that we can address this problem, both from the medical side, like what providers can do, and also what maybe patients can, can do and think about when they talk to their providers about how to make cost decisions or how to make you know resource utilization decisions around care. Patients, on the one hand, can demand answers up front. And some of the more forward-thinking health systems in the United States are doing that. They are publishing online what a certain test or procedure costs with a specific kind of insurance, what would be expected to be paid out of pocket. And so I, I laud those, those systems uh, for being forward thinking. From a research perspective, at the most basic level, we can just highlight these inequities and demonstrate to people with some sort of scientific rigor what treatment algorithms, diagnostic algorithms are more cost effective. I think the really challenging next step 
both for patients and providers and the healthcare system are to actually act on that. And again, this gets back to a cultural problem is convincing people that we don't need to do everything and that we cannot, it's just a simple reality, we cannot do everything for everybody. And this highlights probably the most problematic issue is this moral hazard that we want something done for us that we cannot afford to be done to somebody else. And how to change that, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. But um, that is the underlying problem to everything. Right. I mean, some things like practical things you talk about, you know, if you're, if you're going to need two things done, have them done at the same time. So like if you have liver metastases and colon cancer, get the liver and the colon addressed in the same operation if you can. Things like that, you know, like yeah. just basic efficiencies. And a lot of these they, are not kind of is, don't happen. I had no idea. This is not rocket science, right? Yeah. It makes sense. You do you do something in one setting instead of two, you're gonna save a few a few dollars and you're gonna save some suffering for a patient. And yet we allow something short of best practices to, to happen. And I, I think if there's any reason for optimism it will be that at the payer level, for what, whatever the motivation is at the payer level, whether Medicare or other private insurers, are going to finally just stop paying for things that don't make sense. Yeah. Um, patients may not be happy, and providers might not be happy, but that might be the kind of tough love that is needed. Yeah, it's sort of the, the stick, at least. And then maybe the carrot becomes just thinking about ways to, to teach patients and physicians. I mean, I learned a ton from your talk and I actually work in this space of like unnecessary care. There was, you know, things that I'd never, had never occurred to me, you know, like are mastectomy or mammograms more effective than like clinical exams? Like you think, well, of course they are. They're radiological. They can see deeply into the tissues, but in the end and outcomes from an outcome standpoint, yeah, that's it, right. I mean, it's not so, necessarily the case. You know, Caprice Greenberg and Jessica Schumacher and Heather Newman here have shown that. And and I would say, as you've alluded to, that space is wide open with opportunity for surgeons to be leaders and to demonstrate these things. This has just been such a laggard in terms of health services research that there is all sorts of opportunity. And I think that's really exciting. We just need motivated, invested researchers to, to continue that work. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is a new... 80 hours, right? Like we used to train a sort of unlimited amount of time. And then it started looking like there was going to be a bunch of laws passed to make sure that we didn't do that. And, and medicine sort of viewing that they were about to get externally regulated said, okay, look, we'll figure out a way to make it happen in a mere 80 hours a week. Um, but maybe this is the same thing, right? If, if we're, f if the next step is payers controlling at a very micro level, what we do, maybe this, that'll be the impetus for us to to take that leadership role and and ultimately we care about our patients and we know what we want you know we we know our patients we know what will benefit them better than some insurance algorithm presumably um, so we we just need to not give up that decision making by making bad decisions i think that's exactly right and ultimately what it's going to take are some very influential people at a very high level whether that's in government or in the private sector or in health systems that provide care to you know tens of millions of people, to have some courage to stand up and say this is not sustainable, and we need to be thinking about this in a more thoughtful manner. Yeah, and Dan Abbott, because honestly, like, <laughs> yeah, right. you had a, you had a dozen publications that you presented in this talk, which you can go online and, and see it. It'll be linked off the website. But you're you're asking like fascinating, important questions. 
and I sort of kept walking away being like, seriously, like this is a question that, that wasn't answered and, and now it is in my own mind, but I'd sort of taken a lot of these things that you present as actually not being effective as effective on their face without actually thinking about it. And like, kudos to you for, for wondering if any of these things are actually really helpful. Make a difference. Well, that's very yeah. kind of you. Thank you. Yeah, it really is a passion. And, I, I, you know, certainly for our lifetime, I think there, anybody who wants to make a career out of this kind of work, it is very ripe for that. So cool. Well, before we go, I wanted to uh, just ask you, and we sort of touched on this already, but one of our uh, listeners wrote in and wanted us to sort of talk to everyone that we're, we're interviewing for the podcast about the future of medicine. This particular listener is a medical student and just you know, is looking down the line at what it's going to be like when he gets to where we are. And so and you and I actually were on a panel talking about this recently, but w- what do you think medicine and particularly, I guess, surgical oncology, given that's your specialty, what does that look like five to 10 years from now? What's, what's going to be different? I think there's reason to be both optimistic and pessimistic. I think on the optimistic side, for a number of cancers that are very common, breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, there continue to be significant breakthroughs in targeted chemotherapy agents. You know, for, for the most part, surgical management of these tumors is not going to change very much over the next 50 years. We're just not going to do different, you know, colectomies differently than we do them now. But the, the real advancements are made in systemic therapy options and targeted therapies. And I think as it relates to some of these cost-effective uh, examples, we're going to get better about targeted therapies so we don't spend $50,000 and suffering uh, on a drug that will never work for patients who don't have the right genetic mutation. And alternatively, we're going to find out that certain drugs and biologics work wonderfully for patients with certain mutations. So I think that those personalized therapies are going to get uh, much, much better. And, And the breast, colorectal, lung cancer world have done a wonderful job with that. But there are significant challenges, you know, uh, primary uh, liver tumors are increasing in frequency more than any other solid organ tumors, and pancreas cancer continues to be uh, just a a dismal disease with a poor prognosis, Uh, and despite so many best efforts, systemic therapy options are are not good. So I think there's reason for optimism and pessimism, and and, uh, there is just an opportunity for young, bright, motivated minds to, to make a difference for the lives of these patients who you know, really suffer emotionally and mentally and, you know, financially, so. And there's still going to be a role for scalpels 10 yeah. years from now in surgery. In, in the immediate future, cancer, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. What a pleasure having you. I look forward to seeing you on both sides of the mic uh, going forward. So, <laughs> thank you, Jonathan. Yeah. I appreciate it. Take care. If you're interested in watching Dr. Abbott's full presentation, visit videos.med.wisc.edu or follow a link in the description at our podcast page, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us next time on The Surgery Set when we hear from Dr. Corinne Voiles. She's a psychologist and the scientific director of the Wisconsin Surgical Outcomes Research Program, or WISER, here at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Voiles has been the principal investigator of many randomized controlled trials to evaluate the efficacy of a weight loss maintenance intervention. She'll be discussing her findings about weight loss maintenance at the 2018 UW Obesity Management Summit to be held May 18th and 19th at Monona Terrace in beautiful downtown Madison. Registration is open online. We hope you'll join us. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. 
It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health Video Library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.